Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. Today's cool fact of the day is that microwaved grapes make plasma fireballs. To make your own homemade plasma, you just cut a grape in half, leave the two sections connected at one end by the grape's thin skin, you heat it in a microwave for a few seconds, and then boom, an actual small plasma fireball will erupt from the grape. And this is a mixture of electrons and electrically charged atoms, also known as ions. And people are wondering why this actually happens. And they've said it's about the connecting skin. But when you put two whole grapes together, uh, you can get it to happen as well, which is kind of cool. And similar-sized waterlogged beads called hydrogels will also do it. And what's happening here is way cool and something we didn't understand. It's that grapes act as resonators. And a single grape is just the right size that the electromagnetic wave gets trapped in the fruit, bounces back and forth. And we basically pulled together some heavy-duty physics, I say we being humans and scientists, and figured out that it's the size of the grape that does it. So number one, you're not supposed to try it at home, of course. Number two, you will, because that's how humans are, especially if you're my kids. And number two, I actually have a microwave that was in my house, but I use it to store plates because microwaving your food really doesn't make it bulletproof. Microwave food doesn't taste as good, and it has weird heat pockets that form 10,000 degrees that screw up proteins in food. So if you have a microwave, you should probably not use it, and it probably leaks some some stuff around the door that's probably not good for you. So if you do the experiment, wear a tinfoil hat, lead aprons, and run away screaming while you do it, but it'll still be fun. (laughs) Or you could just do it and have a good time and not worry so much. All right. In my usual spirit of foreshadowing, today's guest is going to mention that having thoughts knock around in your head during meditation is part of the experience, pretty much just like the grape in the microwave. See what I did there with my foreshadowing? I'm, I'm getting pretty good at that, right? All right. Before we get into the episode, though, what if there was a way to level up your energy, get rid of stress, and take more control of your body? Welcome to Quantum Upgrade. This is a new technology that taps into quantum energy to help you feel amazing. Quantum Upgrade has a lot of different products that help protect you from EMF and help activate your body's natural healing abilities. You can expect better sleep, more resilience, less stress, and better blood flow. The cool thing about Quantum Upgrade is that the products are backed by a lot of heavy-duty scientific studies, and there's a new measurable upgrade. You can now use Quantum Upgrade to increase your consciousness levels between 1,400 and 2,200 on the Hawkins map of consciousness. If you don't know what that means, do some research because it's impressive, it's fun to learn about, and it's something that I've come to understand. Ready to try Quantum Upgrade? Visit quantumupgrade.io slash Dave for a seven-day free trial. Everyone's talking about red light therapy beds and for good reason. There's a company called ARRC LED that's building an entirely new class of LED devices. ARRC LED beds integrate proprietary scanning technology and frequency protocols to shape the delivery of six different wavelengths in dose-optimized photobiomodulation. Yes, that's a lot of words. What it is, though, is that photobiomodulation improves the underlying energetics of the cells in your body. And those changes can benefit nearly every tissue and organ and system in your body. 
You change your cells and you change your life. For more information, visit ARRCLED.com. Today's guest is Light Watkins. This is a guy who clearly was named to be a meditation teacher. You can tell, right? <laughs> He's been immersed in that space for two decades. First, he just started out meditating like a lot of people, then as an apprentice to a Vedic meditation teacher, and finally became a teacher himself. You'll find Light Watkins traveling the world, giving talks on happiness, inspiration, meditation, and you've seen him probably in a lot of major media, written two very popular books on happiness and meditation, and he teaches some very heavy-duty celebrities how to meditate. And if you've ever met a celebrity and had a chance to talk to them uh, as real people, they have seriously bad stress levels because they fly everywhere, they have to look a certain way, there's all kinds of pressure. So if you can teach a celebrity to meditate, uh, you're doing something right. Uh, even Deepak Chopra himself says, Light Watkins' approach to meditation is both simple and profound. So when Deepak and a bunch of other cool people say you're good, well, you must be, and I'm saying it too. Light Watkins, welcome to the show. Thank you, Dave. Good to be here. And it was funny, when you were talking about your fun fact in the beginning, I was thinking, Dave Asprey doesn't use a microwave. What is he talking about? <laughs> <laughs> nice. I was hoping some other people on the show would be thinking, or other people listening would be going, what the heck? This this isn't actually yeah. happening. But yeah. You lost me at microwave. Yeah. Go ahead. So I'm assuming you don't use one either or do you? No, no, I don't. I've never used a microwave. Yeah. I, I actually got pushed back from people in the office. I said, you know, I'm not exposing all you guys that I, I care a lot about you. So we bought a much more expensive convection steam oven thing for people to reheat their things uh, because, you know, those little things that just change how you feel, how you perform during the day are great. And we have a toaster too for people who want to go down the evil bread root. <laughs> now, I wanted to go back with you. One of the things that, that attracted me to interviewing you was uh, that you talk about spending years sitting in an uncomfortable positions with whirling thoughts and feeling like a meditation failure. Yes. Uh, tell me what that was like, because I think a lot of people who meditate now are dealing with that. And I certainly did you know, when I first went to a monastery years ago and, and, and all that, it, it's like, man, I, I suck at this. What was going on with you? <laughs> well, I, I, for years I was dabbling in meditation and it was an extension of, um, my interest in yoga. I had started practicing yoga, taking yoga classes. And then ultimately I became a yoga teacher and that's where my struggles with meditation were really highlighted because people look to yoga teachers as experts in meditation. But it's kind of like looking to your doctor as an expert in nutrition. You know, when you read about it, doctors don't really get a whole lot of nutritional uh, instruction when they're going through medical school. And what they learn how to do is treat symptoms. And same thing with yoga. When you go through a yoga teacher training, at least back when I did, there was no meditation instruction. I mean, you meditate it here and there a little bit, but 99% of the instruction was about how to do a downward facing dog or how to do a crow pose and these kinds of things. So when I'm teaching yoga now, people are projecting meditation expert status onto me and I'm feeling like a fraud there at the front of the room because all I know how to do is, is to imitate what I've seen, which is, you know, the guys sitting with their backs straight and their legs crossed and the straighter your back, supposedly the more expert you are in meditation and you have your fingers come together your thumb and your index finger come together, and that's supposed to be a part of the look. But inside, I'm sitting there. <laughs> the look. Yeah, I'm, I'm sitting there thinking about, you know, just all these random things and, and insecurities and just my mind is all over the place. And I have no idea 
if I'm doing it right or if this is what's supposed to be happening or what samadhi even is. I mean, obviously I could I could explain those kinds of concepts very eloquently from my my yoga reading and spiritual reading, but I just I never had a direct experience. So that was the struggle beforehand and when I met my uh, my teacher back in 2002 and he was telling me that you know there's certain there's two basic categories of meditation. There's the monastic track which you've been trying to do and then there's the householder track which is coexisted in tandem with the monastic track for thousands of years. And this householder style is better suited for people like you, people who have a job, people who are in relationships, people who have recreational activities. And the main uh, hallmark of the householder style is you want to actually sit comfortably. You want to get off the floor. You want to uncross your legs. And you want to sit like you're about to binge watch a Netflix series, right? So So I... Light, if you were to just trademark Netflix and chill meditation, I think you'd be a very wealthy man. <laughs> I've used that before on my social media. <laughs> Have you? <Yeah>. Okay. <laughs> okay. Thought I made something up there. <laughs> yeah. So, and then when I did that, it com- it completely upgraded the quality of my experiences, and that's where I first had the the tangible experience of of uh, bliss or samadhi or whatever you want to call it, where you go beyond your surface mind and you feel like you're in some deeper place uh in the meditation i've talked with uh with doug brackman uh, who's a friend he teaches people to meditate with a sniper rifle and his perspective on this is that you know you've got the monastic tradition and then you've got uh, what you call the householder tradition he says but the monastic tradition is fine you're going to live in a cave you're committed you're you're probably weird or really the way it was often done is your parents gave you to the monastery because they either couldn't afford you or because you were unmanageable I mean, like like that, if you go back thousands of years, that's kind of the function of, of some of these monasteries and they teach you to, to hone your mind and all that. But he says, look, if you're a farmer, this householder style is going to work really well for you. But if you're a warrior, <laughs> you're one of those people who's wired to run towards explosions instead of away from them. <laughs> like the meditation isn't going to work for you. Is there any validity to that perspective? It's, you know, these crazy entrepreneur ADD minds, Maybe they need something even different than sitting in an armchair. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, well, I'm not sure what the context was around his statement, so I don't want to say it's incorrect. But just to give more context to to my understanding around it is that you know you want to really instead of having meditation in its own category of experiences that's completely unrelatable to anything that we claim that we need in our in our Western world, we want to kind of we want to put it into the rest category, right? And if we can put it in the rest category, then it can make a lot more sense then we can justify spending that time because that's ultimately when you're, when you're engaging in the householder track, ultimately what you're gaining from that is a degree of rest that you wouldn't otherwise get from sleeping. And as you and your audience probably understands, you know, we have, we're in an epidemic right now where most people are not sleeping properly. Like they're, they're getting mediocre to, to low end sleep. And, and I've heard, I, I got to interrupt you for a second there. Last night, new personal record and seven hours of sleep, three and a half hours of REM sleep. Exactly. And, and, and that's the deal. You know, it's not, it's not even about how many hours it's about the quality yes. of rest that you're getting. And I think that conversation is starting to become uh, more popular now among, among hackers and people who are looking to optimize productivity. And so meditation is the ultimate rest hack. It can get, if you can get a meditation or two into your day and you can enhance the quality of rest that your body's able to get, then 
everything else starts to become more optimized. So if you're a warrior, you know, what are the what are the skill sets that a warrior needs to do do their job well? They need to be able to to strategize. They need to be able to um, to see things more clearly. If you're a sniper, you need to be able to be able to to hone in and focus on things a lot better. And these are the benefits. These are classic benefits that someone who's rested, more rested, are going to have over the same version of that person who's not rested, who's sleep deprived. You know, you read the studies about how when you miss out on the quality of sleep that you should be getting at night, it's it's like you're waking up in the morning, drinking three or four cans of beer, and then going to drive and then going to work. That's that's how responsive you're going to be. That's how focused you're going to be. You're going to be under the influence of sleep deprivation, which is which is worse sometimes than being under the influence of alcohol. You can cancel that out light. All you got to do is take the cans of beer, you put them in the blender, add butter, you just blend it right up and you'll be good to go. <laughs> I forgot who I was talking to. <laughs> yeah, okay, you can optimize the alcohol with a little Sorry. bit. Sorry, keep, keep going with it. They have done studies. Keep going on this. I love it. Sorry, I just had to say. They've done studies comparing, comparing drunk drivers and sleep-deprived drivers. And yeah. guess who drives better? Drunk drivers. Legally intoxicated drivers can drive circles around sleepy drivers. But it's not illegal to drive while sleepy. But that's how a lot of these, most of the accidents are happening yeah. because people are falling asleep at the wheel or they're just not very, very focused. And and that's that's one reason, yes, you want to focus on the quality of your rest. I've been saying since the start of the blog, like the reason modafinil or provigil is uh, is kind of a, a known substance is I'm like, look, you should have one of these in your glove box because it could save your life. And it's way better than a caffeine pill. It's frankly in the middle of the night, even if you've drunk all the coffee you can, your eyes are still crossing that stuff is going to get you through. And staying awake sometimes is a matter of life and death and being focused and performing well can be as well. So right. I'm just like, you should use every tool you can to not drive like you're sleep deprived. Uh, and ideally sleep would be the way to do it. So so you're saying people can't meditate if they haven't slept well, or at least they can't meditate very no, well. No, I'm saying that... people, can't, people can't do their job if they haven't, uh, if they're okay. not rested. And meditation as a very practical application can help them become a better, whatever, lawyer, comedian, yeah. doctor, you know, mother. And there's no one who can't benefit from having more rest. Can, can you replace sleep with meditation? And, and the reason I'm asking you, before I had kids, I said, all right, I'm gonna wake up at five in the morning because everyone knows good people do that. By the way, Game Changers, I show the evidence that you should wake up when you should wake up. But anyway, I did this. And that meant I was sleep deprived because my natural bedtime is two in the morning or something. So sometimes I wouldn't get enough sleep, but I found I could replace like maybe uh, two hours of sleep with an hour of meditation, like really deep breathing, chanting, energy stuff, like, like heavy duty stuff. Do you find as a you know Vedic meditation teacher who spent three months in the Himalayas, is it reasonable to say I could sleep less if I meditate more or is that just BS? Well, I think what it does is it enhances the quality of your sleep that you are getting. Um, and I'm sure there are exceptions to everything, but I would say as a rule, um, you still want to get enough sleep so that your body has that. The body still needs a sufficient amount of sleep. It still needs the, the dreaming, the REM state, and it needs the waking state in order to achieve maximum balance. The experiment that I think that you know your listeners and whoever else can can run for themselves so they can kind of gain some sort of empirical evidence for this is to, you know, when you when you want to get up 15 or 20 minutes earlier to meditate, right, you do that, you force yourself to get up, you sit, just even if you just slide up to the headboard of your bed and close your eyes, and you meditate for those, those last 20 minutes, and you notice how you feel coming out of your practice, right? And then you split test it. The next day, you stay in the bed, and you hit the snooze button three times for those 20 minutes, 
and then you see how you feel coming out of the alarm experience. And, and you'll see which one has a better quality of, of, of uh, clarity and, and rest and, and, and perceptual acuity coming out. And, and my, my guess is that it's going to be the meditation experience. So, um, you know, I've heard certain teachers say meditation can give you two to five times uh, deeper rest, right? And that's what they mean by that is if you take any part of your nighttime sleep, the deepest parts usually are between 2 a.m. and 4 a.m. So if you take any 20 minutes from that chunk of time and you multiply it in terms of levels of rest uh, times two to five, that's the quality of rest that you are supposedly getting when you're sitting in meditation. And so that's been my experience. If, I, if I'm tired because I went to bed late and I'm waking up a little bit earlier to make sure I meditate before I engage in activity, I find that I'm a lot clearer from waking up earlier and doing the last 20 minutes of meditation versus hitting the snooze button and then being alarmed out of rest and feeling all out of sorts and all over the place. You actually traveled with your meditation teacher, MV, to Rishikesh in the Himalayas, which is about a day and a half uh, by driving from the source of the, the Ganges River. And it, it, it that stuck out to me because uh, I actually went to the actual source of the Ganges River, Mount uh, Kailash, and, and walked around Mount Kailash uh, where I uh, call it discovered, at least first tried uh, uh, yak butter tea, which became Bulletproof Coffee. So we were in the same neighborhood basically <laughs> a while back. And I spent about three months in that part of the world, not all doing meditation uh, work, but did a bunch of Tibetan meditation and all. But you went there, you took three months, you did a thousand hours of meditation to complete your your training and become a, a formal Vedic meditation teacher. When you were in the Himalayas, do they talk about alarm clocks and proper ways to wake up, or is it completely divorced from the world that you and I are, are immersed in today? Um, you know, it's interesting because in my training, it was, it was very much a, um, a controlled environment. And when you're meditating so much, as I was, we were meditating up to 14 hours a day, in periods of, uh, we were doing rounds of meditation, which would last one round, would last an hour, and then you do another one and another one like that. And there's a certain sequence of pranayama, yoga, eyes closed, seated meditation that you were doing within those rounds and things yeah. had to be kind of timed certainly. So you would ha- sometimes you would even use a soft alarm uh, just to kind of get you, just to remind you to get to the next sequence, but you'd also have like little pennies and things in front of you. So you could count how many times you've done uh, certain parts of the sequence so that you didn't lose track. Uh, so yeah, there were some alarms that were involved in all of that, but generally speaking, no, there's no, nobody use alarms when they, when they go in or out of meditation. I mean, one of the reasons why you don't usually use an alarm is because most people aren't enjoying meditation enough to be alarmed out of meditation. So they're actually biding their time and they can't wait for the experience to be over. And when you start to have the householder sort of experience, that's where an alarm can become useful because you're enjoying it so much. And it's very possible that you may over meditate. And it's like, you know, with me, I, I remember Back in uh, Santa Monica a couple of years ago, I had a, I was single at the time. I had a date. It was a first date. And I decided I was going to sit on my couch and do a meditation before I go on this date because I'm a better version of myself if I meditate first <laughs> and then go and... So, so there's, there's your next quote, meditate for a hot date. That's right. <laughs> meditate before your date. Don't leave home without it. And, um, and I ended up over meditating about 30 minutes. And so I was really late to this first oh. date. And, you know, it's and even though everyone loves meditation nowadays and everyone's looking at meditation, it's still not ubiquitous enough for that to be a reasonable excuse to be late for a date. It just looked like I was a jerk and, uh, and I didn't really want to be there, even though I did want to be there. So I had to remind myself the next time I have a really important appointment that I need to use a little soft alarm to come out of meditation. But again, the purpose is 
because I, if I don't, I wouldn't come out of meditation and because I go so deep into it and it's so enjoyable and I look forward to it so much. And that's one of the reasons why we, we use an alarm when we sleep at night is because we know that at some point, at least even if for the sleep deprived people, they may get to a deeper uh, state of rest, maybe, you know, just before the, the alarm goes off and the alarm is your backup to remind you, you have things to do. So I think that's where you want to be. If you have to use an alarm, you want to use it because you enjoy it so much you can't come out versus you know, I need it to remind me of the time because I can't wait for it to be over. That's a, uh, that's a beautiful explanation of it. Uh, what was it like uh, to, to go learn this Vedic meditation uh, uh, in, in the Himalayas? Most people listening to the show may have heard of Vedic meditation. I know Emily Fletcher has been on who talks about it. You know, you're, you're a very well-trained in Vedic meditation. Um, <laughs> just kind of tell me, what was the, the process like? You know, are, are they hitting you with sticks? I know that's like more of a Zen thing in, in Japan, but you know, you know, bad, bad meditator smack. Or, you know, but like, how, how do you actually like become a master in, in this? I, I want to know the daily thing. Like, like how painful was it? G- give me what was it like? All right, so I'm going to take it back just a couple of steps. All right, I met my teacher um, in a living room in West Hollywood in February 2003. And when I met him, uh, he, he was, I would say he was one of the happiest people I'd ever witnessed. And that's what really appealed me to the, the, the style of meditation was I figured if, if he was embodying that degree of happiness from doing, from meditating in this way, then I wanted, I wanted what he had. So he taught me how to meditate and I went through some um I went through the instruction process and during the instruction process, you had to bring fruit, you had to bring flowers. There was a picture of gurus. And so there were some hints of India at the very beginning. I didn't know anything about it. I didn't know what it meant. I didn't know why there was this little brown powder that I learned later with sandalwood paste. And um, there was some camphor powder and all of these things because I'd never been to India before. Oh, yeah. So I started apprenticing my teacher because I just wanted to be around it so much and hear him teach other people. And I knew inside that I was meant to at one point become a teacher, but there were no teacher trainings. This is 2003, remember? So there were no apps. There was no YouTube. Oh, yeah. You know, there was <laughs> nothing, nothing yeah, that we have today. We have so much access to this stuff today. But I would just shadow him around. And then about three or four years later, he invited myself as well as some of his other protégés to come to India. Why India? Because... That's where he learned with his Indian teacher up in Rishikesh. Rishikesh, so India, for those of you who uh, have never been before, is kind of shaped like a diamond. Rishikesh is at the top end of the diamond, and the, Him- the Himalayas, as they call it, are um, they're, they're, they're the border of the northern part of the country, north, the northern part of that diamond. So Rishikesh is not that far from that border. And you go up there, and it's nestled right into the foothills of, those, of that mountain range, and it's right on the Ganges River, which is the sacred holy river of, of ancient India. And... Um, yeah, it's just it, it, culturally, it, there's there's some Western conveniences, but there's still enough of the ancient Indian uh, culture present, so that you feel like you're getting you're getting a little bit of both of those experiences. And there's an old ashram set up where my teacher used to train with his teacher, who's Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, who you may have heard about. He's the guy that started transcendental meditation. So my teacher spent many years there studying with his with with Maharishi. And there are other sort of landmarks uh, sprinkled around in the area. It's kind of like I don't know if you've ever been to Jerusalem to Israel. You know, you, you, we've all heard about these different places from the Bible, the, the, the um, Sermon on the Mount and the Sea of Galilee and, you know, all of these different places. They're all there. I went to Israel a couple of years ago, and it's surprising because it's kind of like looking around Venice, California. It's, you think these places are so far away, but they're all there. And you realize these guys were just really talking about their hood <laughs> and all these things that took place that we're still talking about 2,000, 3,000 years later are basically within a circumference of, you know, a few miles of one another. So Rishikesh is kind of the same thing for the ancient Vedic culture, all these different landmarks that you read about in the Bhagavad Gita and the Mahabharata, the classic texts of that culture, they're all within the same relative vicinity, all the temples and the Ganges River and this, that river and this thing, this cave over here was significant because this master meditated in that cave. And so if you do the, if you, if you 
engage with those lineages, you're ultimately going to find yourself up in northern India at some point. And what it does is it just adds a lot more, um, it gives you a lot more context as a teacher. You know, it's kind of like uh, someone who's studying origami going to Japan or, you know, floral arrangement going to Japan and studying the source of it. Or if you want to become an Italian chef, you go to Italy. If you want to be a French chef, you go to France. And so you, you have access to just, you have access to the culture, which gives you, which informs you in a way about this tradition that you wouldn't be informed if you were just in Kansas, you know, learning to become a teacher. And so I think a lot of it is intangible. You know, it's not something that necessarily is going to come up in a, tra- in a course when you're teaching someone how to meditate, but it definitely adds to your own level of understanding of why do they use these particular offerings? Why is sandalwood paste? And, and there's a whole story behind that, how people would, you know, you would wet sandalwood paste, the sandalwood powder, and you would spread it across your forehead. And that's because the Indian sun is so hot and it'd be something that was calming, but it was also expressive of transcendence. And why fruits and why flowers? Because when you're in the foothills of the Himalayas, away from the river, the masters wouldn't have access to these kinds of things. And so in order to gain um, entry into the ashram, you would bring those offerings. You would bring things that they would use to beautify the space, to make the space more aromatic um, from from where you came. And, and that, would, that would initiate you as a student. And so uh, I think those are the things that would, would, uh, would make the big difference when you go and train in a place like in India. And, you know, India is India. India is the complete opposite of, of the West. And here in the West, Everything is very orderly. Everything is very logical. But when you look in someone's eyes in the West, you may see hints of anxiety, right? And, and uncertainty. And in India, it's flipped. Everything is chaotic externally. Nothing makes sense. But when you look in people's eyes, you may see a sense of peace and serenity, right? And, and it makes sense because in that culture, they, they, have a, they place a premium on, on inner work, on on spirituality. And, and in the West, we place a premium on capitalism and making as much money as possible. And that equates to success and that, this kind of thing. The best thing that can happen to a person in, in the East, in that culture, is to find one's teacher and to become self-realized. And that's still very much a part of that culture. You brought this back uh, from India. And I'm going to steal a question from Maria Shriver. <laughs> you, were, you were on her show, Architects of Change. Uh, I was just on it recently as well. Uh, and uh, really support her women's Alzheimer's movement. And just uh, she's a, a fantastic person, but she asked you this question. She said, how do you feel you're moving humanity forward in this moment in time? And that, that's a massive question and uh, frankly kind of ballsy to ask <laughs> to open an interview. But I mean, there's a bunch of meditation teachers out there, right? There, the meditation has become cool. There's apps that companies with meditation apps worth a billion dollars and all that stuff. How is what you're doing moving humanity forward, given that meditation has become a thing? Hmm, that's a great question. And uh, the first thing that comes to mind is the is the, the parable of the young man, the young boy walking along the beach with all the starfish scattered all around on the sand, and he's tossing them in back into the ocean. And he, this old man sees him and walks up to him and says, what are you doing? And he says, I'm trying to save the starfish. And the old man says, well, there's millions of these starfish. You can't possibly save them all. And he picks one up. The little boy picks one up and tosses it in. And he says, I saved that one. <laughs> I picked up another one. I saved that one, right? And I think, you know, I think anyone in any type of profession that is is with the intention of leaving uh, humanity better than how they found them, I think you have to come to terms with the fact that you can't save everybody. You can't have, you can't have um, a bigger effect than what you're having if that's your intention. I think, I think the intention needs to just be to, to do the best you can with whatever you have available to you. And this could be anybody, you know, if you're a bus driver, you know, you should try to make your passengers feel as comfortable and as safe as they can on your route that day. And you just never know how the ripple effects of your 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 humanity and your good um, intentions are going to affect everybody else. You can't. We, what we do know is we can't suffer in isolation, and we can't be happy in isolation. And 
And I think this is really a really important point for people to to embody because I think we live in a time now where because we have such access to information and you know social media, it looks like everybody else is out there making a much bigger impact than what we're making. And um, and it's very easy to feel like we're not doing enough. I heard Oprah on one of her podcasts talk about this with somebody. She was saying, I forget who she was talking to, Paulo Coelho or somebody like this. And she told him, she opened up, she said, I feel like sometimes I'm just not doing enough. You know, Oprah Winfrey <laughs> feels like she's not doing enough. And um, now, I've had the same thought, to be perfectly honest. <laughs> yeah, I think every, and it's, it's pretty clear, it's become clearer that everybody is, feels like this. So, and you know, when you come on a, an interview or you give a talk and they do your introduction and you hear about, you hear somebody else list off all the things you've done and the big impact you've had and, you know, the people who look up to you, sometimes it, it feels like they're talking about somebody else because in our, in our little world and in our mind, we just feel like, oh, I'm just me. I'm the same I've been since I was, you know, 15 years old and just out here trying to do the best I can. And I know what all my flaws are and I know where my shortcomings are, my blind spots. And, and yeah, I've got a long way to go still. And I think this is, a, this is, this is a good, good way to be because it keeps you humble. It keeps you focused on the process and not the outcome. And that's really the big difference. I think if you're, if you stay focused on the process, we don't know how this thing is going to go. We don't know, you know, how someone that I get a chance to work with is going to affect someone else. They may become president. They may become, you know, some big leader of a corporation that changes the, the, um, the landscape of all the other corporations. You just don't know. So I try to just keep in the mind, you know, the whole parable of, you know, you can give a man fish, feed him for a day or teach him how to fish and feed him for life and just keep teaching people how to fish for happiness, for peace, for bliss. And, you know, it's not in my, it's not my control what happens after that. I'm, my job is just to make sure I'm, I can, I'm doing the best, best job teaching people how to fish for happiness. That's uh it, it's awesome that you're talking about happiness there uh, because a lot of the things that you teach uh, on your website, uh, by the way, lightwalkins.com, if you're listening and you uh, you appreciate Light's perspective on things, um, you talk about happiness. And after I interviewed these 500 people for, uh, for Game Changers and I boiled down the three things that people really have a big impact on the world are doing, one of them is, uh, they're happy. They're doing things to increase happiness. They're not happy because they were successful. They were successful because they learned how to be happy and that made success easier for them. What's your take on happiness? I think that um, the first thing that needs to happen is we should re- we should redefine success for ourselves as individuals, right? Because when people have an idea of success that is not in alignment with with whatever's happening inside of them in terms of callings or in terms of what their passion or charms are, then even if they are achieving those goals and even if they are living in alignment with that, they may not feel very happy. They may feel like they're inadequate in some way. Kind of like the Einstein quote, if you judge a fish by its ability to climb a tree, it's going to spend its whole life feeling like it's stupid. So I just think that, I think that's an important conversation that we need to have with ourselves. We need to really sit down and think about what does happiness mean to me? What does success mean to me? And then happiness is a, it's, it's a, it's a state of contentedness mm. that comes from knowing that we've done everything that we could do to live our, live our lives in, in alignment with that, that pursuit of, of um, whatever we determine success to be for ourselves. So it's very individual and it's very subjective and no one else can tell you if you're success or successful or not. Only you know that. Only you, only you know um, if you are moving in that direction or not. And it, on the outside, it can look like you're the most successful person in the world. You can have all this money. You can live in a mansion. You can have beautiful people all around you drive fancy cars, but inside, if you know you're not doing what you're here to do, whatever that is, um, then you're probably not going to sleep very well at night. You're probably going to feel a bit anxious and you're probably going to be seeking validation from outside of yourself, which is going to then, you know, lead to other bad things and dependencies and addictions and whatnot. So I don't think it really, you can't really gauge this based on what it looks like on the outside. 
I think that we need to come to terms with it for ourselves. And maybe that needs to be a part of the conversation as well. Maybe that's something that we should, as a society, talk more and more about. Instead of asking people at a party, what do you do for a living? You ask them, you know, are you happy? And what makes you happy? And then that becomes the new gauge for success. Yeah, because what you're doing probably isn't what's making you happy. And I, I think that's a, a disconnect. That's certainly something that happened in earlier in my career. Like, oh, and when I get this success, I'll be happy. It doesn't work like that. Now, you talk about something else, though, uh, that I haven't heard others uh, talk about in the same way. You talk about the difference between bliss and happiness. What is the definition of bliss compared to happiness? Um, I would say that happiness, again, happiness is a state of contentedness. And bliss is kind of like a flavor. Bliss is a flavor of happiness. And so when you're able to get, particularly in the practice of meditation, you're able to get into a state of bliss. It means that you're able to access an internal state of contentedness that is so great, that is so serene, so supreme, that you're not aware of much else. So it's something that you can go into, kind of like when you go into a hot bath, right? You go into a hot bath and you're perfectly still. And what happens? You start to become numb to the experience because there's just stillness. So you don't even, you can't feel anything because it feels so good. So it's not until you start agitating the water that it actually feels even better. It's the agitation. And, and the agitation is when you take the bliss back into the eyes open you know, experiences. And that becomes the happiness. Happiness is bliss mixed with action. So ha- happiness is a warm bath and bliss is when you turn the bubbles on? No, bliss is the bath. Bliss is- or, or, sorry, I had it backwards. Yeah, yeah. Okay, bliss is the bath, but without bubbles. Right, bliss is the okay. bath. That's the quiet, still, settled state. Numb, you can't really okay. feel anything because it feels so good. Right. But you don't know it feels good because you're nothing is happening, nothing is moving. And then happiness, happiness is when you take the bliss experience and you agitate it. You 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 take it into action essentially. So when you go to work, when you go to your when you communicate with your friends and your family, when you're with yourself watching television or whatever you do, and you feel that sense of happiness, the contentedness inside, it's happening. It's being more stabilized because you've been you've been emerging yourself in the bliss um, in, in your meditation practices or whatever your inner work practices are. So is there a meditation to get into happiness or bliss? Like what, what's the fastest meditation for that? The fastest meditation to get into bliss <laughs> is silent meditation, right? And, and this, is a, this is something that I've been, I've been kind of contending with for a while, you know, and especially nowadays with all the apps and everything. And look, I'm not a hater of meditation. I think that any type of meditation is useful and valuable, and there are a lot of on-ramps to meditation. And at the same time, we, I think we as a society have come to label meditation as an experience that requires some, some level of guidance guided meditation. We've kind of made guided meditation the gold standard for meditation. So if it's not guided, then it's not, it's not something that I want to be doing. And if you go back to historical times, there's, there's no precedent for guided meditation. Guided meditation is really a, a Western construct that came out of psychology circles in the 1980s, um, you know, where you get visual cues and different other verbal prompts. And it's a way to help people cope with the sort of busy mind to focus your busy mind while sitting with your eyes closed. But in historical meditation, it's, it's mostly silent meditation and you're sitting there and, and, and this is what I talk about in my book, Bliss More. You have to go through those busy, those quote unquote busy mind thoughts in order to arrive at the bliss. And the bliss is just beyond the busy mind. So the question becomes not how do I stop the thoughts because you need thoughts, but how do I go, how do I transverse the thoughts? How do I go through them in the most efficient way possible? So I would say that the best meditation for doing that is a silent practice that gives you the tools to, to meditate in concert with those, those so-called busy mind thoughts so that your mind can then settle through the thoughts and eventually arrive at the inner bliss. That, uh, that makes a lot of sense. And this is always tough because all of the states of meditation are felt states and there aren't words to describe them. Like you and I can agree that's blue, 
right? Because we can both see it. But when you're saying, I'm feeling this thing inside, there isn't really a, a word or the word that I use to describe it isn't the word you use to describe it. And I think that's why meditation teaching has thousands of years of people trying to do it better <laughs> and eventually learning how. And th that's why neurofeedback and heart rate variability and all uh, have me excited, even by neural beats, uh, these different technologies that allow you to sort of say, well, if you can do this with your brain, this is the word for that. But until you know the, the lights turn green or you know you hear a buzz or whatever, you probably haven't done it. And the corollary, if you're at a monastery or a meditation thing, you got someone in the front of the room who's really tuned in and they're watching you. And when you get it, they're like, yeah, you got it, right? And, and they, they, they kind of tell you, they can, they can sense when you're there. Uh, the problem is if they were distracted that day because they were looking at another student and you got it, you didn't know you got it. So then you're sitting there like kind of still struggling and not quite getting there. And uh, so I'm hoping tech makes it better. Do you think tech is going to make it better though? Or is that kind of a, a, a bit of a perversion of meditation? I absolutely feel that if you can measure if you can measure meditation properly, that you can you become very enthusiastic about it just because you're able to see your own progress. But that's one of the things that I wanted to bring to the conversation, going back to your last question, what is something that I can do to change things, is I wanted to put words to the experience because I find that that's something that's been missing. There's a big gap in people. Most, most meditation instructions and instructors are just going to say, close your eyes and just you know watch your thoughts or witness this or monitor that. But they don't really talk about the detailed process of what one experiences so that one can then verify that experience, validate and verify the experience with whatever the, the uh, bigger graph is or, you know, or, or the bigger pathway is. And, and so in my, in my book, I, I, I literally break down the different layers of thinking, going from the very surface uh, level of thinking, which I call the focus thinking zone. This is where you have all of your awareness. This is where you know you're meditating, right? We all start there. And then below that, I have a layer of thinking called, which I call the random thinking zone. And I call it random because it means that the thoughts you're going to be experiencing at this level here are not going to be related to the knowledge that you're, the awareness that you're meditating, but they're still going to be related to whatever's happening in your current life. And then below that, we have the daydreaming zone, which is where you're going to have a mixture of these focused uh, surface thoughts, you know, things about the past, things about the future, but you also may have thoughts um, that don't make a lot of sense, kind of like when we daydream. And then below that, we have just the dreaming zone, which is where all your leprechauns and rainbows and blue jays and those kinds of things live. The, the, the thoughts that are completely unrelated to and maybe even feeling a little bit unhinged from our, our regular reality. And then below that is the settled mind experience. So one has to go through all of those zones in order to arrive at the settled mind experience. And if, if you have a handful of meditation experiences and you reflect back after the meditation, don't do this during meditation or it will ruin the effects, but if you reflect back after the meditation, you'll be able to, to see, oh, I was here and then I was there and then I was there. And I even give examples of the kinds of thoughts that you're going to be having in each one of those zones. So I think I haven't seen this in any other meditation book. And I think one of the reasons is because most people who write meditation books aren't meditation teachers. And that's another big misconception. And again, I don't have any hate or, you know, it's just the way things are. We know, you and I know in the book industry, it's not about what you know, it's about what your, how big your platform is. So people who have biggest, the bigger platforms end up getting the biggest book deals. So, but most of the people who are writing about meditation, you know, are marketers or, you know, doctors and, and doctors and researchers are great, but they're not teaching people how to meditate every day as a full-time profession. And when you're, when this is your full-time profession and you're listening to this feedback day after day and week after week and year after year, you're able to really quickly determine who's having the experience, who's not having the experience and what the best practices are for, for achieving the desired experience. And that's what I've, that's become my unique advantage in the market, in the field of meditation. So being able to not just know it, but also to be able to articulate it in a way that feels accessible for, for people who have little to no interest in meditation but to make them excited about it in the same way that they may be excited about watching the Super Bowl or, um, you know, binge watching Game of Thrones season six or something like that. So, 
So, um, but yeah, there, there's there's absolutely a process that's that's everyone experiences, and um, and once you know what that process is, you take the guesswork out of it, and it allows you to relax into it a lot more. And it's because you're relaxed about it that you're going to end up experiencing the deeper aspects of the meditation a lot easier. And that's the irony of the whole thing. When you have to use a lot of guesswork, it ends up sabotaging your best efforts, and you end up staying at the surface, and makes you feel like it's not working. That the staying at the surface problem was was an issue for me. I, I did a lot of meditation classes. Uh, I actually spent five years doing Art of Living, which helped me a lot. So it's a, out of India, a set of breathing exercises, um, pranayama forms and things like that. And a, a bunch of chanting work uh, based on this guy's work, Dharma Singh Khalsa, uh, who wrote a book called Meditation is Medicine. And then you know, yoga and all this stuff. I, I haven't talked that much about that on, on the show, but I, I've been, put a lot of hours into this stuff. But what I, I found is that it, you realize oh man, I've been doing it this way for the last eight years or five years or whatever. And, and I was doing it wrong. Like I was breathing and I was moving energy from my toes towards the, out the top of my head. But it turns out the thing from the Chinese form is actually breathe through your feet and like, holy crap, all this time, I didn't know that I was breathing my energy. Okay. What am I talking about? If you don't meditate, everything I just said was complete gobbledygook. But I can tell you if someone had just told me that it would have saved me like 500 hours that's as many episodes of the show as there are 500 hours of sitting there meditating and getting only half the return. And that kind of pisses me off, to be honest. Like, like I, I feel like we have a duty. Everyone's too busy right now. We have a duty to tell them, look, like meditate faster. It's okay. Like, like, like do it better. And I think you, you dialed into a lot of this with what you just said right there. So my own frustration around meandering. Yeah. yeah. Another part of that meditation conversation that we need to have more of is we need to, we need to openly acknowledge that all meditation is not Meditation is a generic word. It's it's like cooking. It's like sports. So yeah. to say that you meditate and you're getting this result doesn't really tell someone else that if they meditate, they're going to get that same result. And we, we need to go in a little bit deeper than that. You can meditate on spilling the blood of your enemies, and, and it's just, it's not going to have the same result <laughs> as some of these other ones, right? So uh, agreed. You can have junk food. You can't have real food. It, it's just who's, who's the guru who knows which meditation is the best one? I, I mean – is it, yeah, is it you? So, is it MV? Who is it? Right. That's a good question. And um, so my whole thing is, look, you don't want to depend on anyone to tell you these things. There are certain right. There are certain things that you can do to determine for yourself which one is going to be the, the best one for you. And I, I try to stay away from the word, you know, this is the correct meditation or this is the right way to meditate because people don't the people in the meditation industry don't like that. They don't like when someone suggests that theirs is the best or the right way and this kind of thing. But what I will say is that depending on the, the effects that you want from the meditation, there are always best practices to achieve those particular results, right? And just like you, um, I, I, I had vowed to myself, uh, I think in 2016, there I, I used to live around the corner from this really big, steep hill in Santa Monica, and I said, you know, I want to lose some of my body fat and this and that. I'm going to sprint. I'm going to run up this hill. I'm going to jog up this hill uh, 10 times a, a day, every other day for a year. And I started doing that. And I did that for three or four months. I talked to a friend of mine who's a nutritional expert. And he was telling me, you know, you don't want to jog up the hill. You want to sprint up the hill. If your goal is to is to lose body fat, you want to make sure that you're you're sprinting and not jogging. And, and I was, I was so upset because I had spent all this time 
thinking that I was doing the right thing, you know, and jogging up that that hill for six months. But I, at the same time, I'm happy. I, I was happy I had that experience because it made me appreciate the correction a lot more. And you know, I think with meditation, we want to look at it as a as a marathon, not not as not as something that we we do for a couple of weeks or for a month to achieve a certain result. We want to look at it as preventative maintenance that we're going to be doing pretty much for the rest of our life. And so any kind of course correction will be useful as we as we become more and more familiar with those with that internal landscape. But we also want to just know that, you know, there are specific practices that can help us achieve whatever the desired goal is. So the way you spot diagnose which style is best for you, in my opinion, is you go to the you meet the person or you you go to the talk. And and by the way, if you really want to learn this, you want to you want to study with someone. I mean, reading a book is great. Looking at a video is great. But no one who's who's read a, who's written a book or created a video that has gone, you know, that's going to become massive. Usually those people didn't learn how to meditate from a book or a video. Can I just double down on that? Uh, you're listening to the show. You want to you care about doing things with excellence. Having a teacher is so legit. Read the books, do the courses, use the software, all that. But I'm telling you, doing a yoga video is not the same as having a yoga teacher tell you, you know, your pelvis is tipped a little bit backwards and you didn't notice. Like just just take Light's advice on that. If there's one thing you get out of the show today, it's find a teacher when you're ready. It's okay to start with a book, but find a teacher. And you might even start with Bliss Moore, uh, the new book that Light wrote. But whatever you start with, just please don't ignore that advice. All right, off my soapbox. Keep going, Bliss. Or Bliss. I just called you Bliss, dude. I mean, Light. <laughs> Bliss yeah. Watkins. That, that could be your sister, right? Yeah, I, li- I like that. <laughs> Bliss, Light. What's the difference? So... I would say go to the teacher, go to the center, go to the studio or what have you and look around the room and see who all is in there and find the people who are enjoying whatever that particular approach happens to be. Find the people who are enjoying it the most. And if those people look like you and they're dressed like you and they're they're enjoying life in the same ways that you're enjoying life, then that's probably going to be a style that works best for you. However, if you find the enthusiasts, the super fans of that particular technique, and they're all sitting around wearing robes and their heads are shaved and their lifestyle is drastically different from yours, that's where that technique is going. So in order for you to get the most out of that particular approach, you're probably going to have to at some point Give all your clothes over the Goodwill and go buy yourself some robes and shave your hair off and join a monastery or what have you. So I think if we if we is, is that why you have no hair? Right? <laughs> well, there's as, as my friend Neil Strauss says, there's balding <laughs> and there's choosing to be bald. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> I love Neil. <laughs> yeah, he's awesome. So, um, yeah, I, I, I would say that, you know whatever whatever it is if people if the people that you connect with are 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 very similar to you in lifestyle then that's probably going to be a that's probably going to be a a technique that you're going to also enjoy if they enjoy it there's a caveat now i want to test this advice out with you because it's what i i've shared with people Um, a friend of mine who was really perceptive just said hey dave you should try this art of living thing this is going back like 15 years and I said, all right, fine, I'm open-minded. You know, I'll try stuff that's not supposed to work. Most of the companies I work for in Silicon Valley were started by engine entrepreneurs. 
Uh, mm-hmm. So I've had my share of great Indian food at Amber India and, and kind of got immersed in that, uh, in that culture. And so I go to this thing and just like you said, there's bowls of fruit, uh, candles burning, white robes. And, and I'm just like, I, I'm an engineer. I, I, I can't connect with this stuff. Like I, I'm out. So I did the one class and we tasted a grape with mindful awareness mm-hmm. uh, without microwaving it. Uh, <laughs> just all, all, all this stuff. And so I, I just didn't connect and I never did the exercises. And about two years later, the CEO of the company I worked for, uh, BV Jagdish, one of the best CEOs I've ever worked with, uh, an early investor in Google, and uh, uh, just a guy who'd been doing yoga at his house every morning for 30 years. Mm-hmm. He said, Dave, why don't you come to this at one of the Intel founder executive people at their mansion in Saratoga. It's for executives. And I go in there and I'm like, oh. I'm not yet an executive, but I'm on my way. And and this is a room full of people who have really succeeded. And they change the language. Say, here's why you do this breathing. Here's what it does when you have a different mindset. And all of a sudden, I'm like, I get it. And so I did this practice like every morning for five years. And and it really rocked my brain. And, and when I was in Silicon Valley, every Saturday morning at 7 a.m., we'd meet at BB's house. And we'd like, there's probably 20 of us in this room doing these weird, like breathing fast breathing exercises with your arms in weird poses because it worked, right? Mm-hmm. But for me, the robes repelled me. Mm-hmm. And I would say, even if there are weird robes and yoga pants that you're not really comfortable with yet or whatever, you got to try it for a week or two. But just know, you can say, I'm never going to shave my head. I don't want to buy a robe. It's going in that direction, maybe at some point. But can I skim the surface, pick up some knowledge and figure out what's going on? As long as you don't get shades of brainwashing in there, it seems like a good way to to sort of sample a smorgasbord of options. Is that good advice or dangerous advice? No, no, no. I think I absolutely tell people to try everything because at the very least, it'll allow you to appreciate when you stumble upon the thing that feels most in alignment with who and what you are. And, and, you know, just don't, but don't discount or deny your own direct experience either. There you go. Don't, don't say, don't believe something it's working because someone else tells you that it should be working and you just have to ignore you know, whatever you're feeling right now, because that's, you're just not at a certain level of enlightenment yet. And this kind of nonsense that, that hasn't been my experience. My experience is, is that you, there are certain approaches to practices like meditation that actually feel amazing from the very beginning. And you don't have mm-hmm. to be in a certain level of consciousness or enlightenment or history of yoga or any of those kinds of things. And so keep, keep exploring and eventually you'll you'll learn the better questions to ask when you go meet new teachers and uh, you know but also also always keep an air of humility with everyone who's who's out there teaching people no one's teaching meditation to become you know to get on the forbes 500 list of wealthiest individuals <laughs> even though if they they may be charging a good amount of money and all of that they're not they're not you don't there're much easier ways to become wealthy in in our society and trying to teach people how to meditate. And, you know, we're in a, we're in an age now where meditation is very much a profession for a lot of people. And, you know, you get what you pay for in, in, in certain ways. And I think this is something that we also need to become more educated about as Westerners is that, you know, this is the, the reason why I think money is, is a big part of the exchange in, in, in America and in the West is because that's something that we worship the most. And a teacher Sometimes, you know, teachers don't really care about your money. They just want to know how attached you are to your stuff. 
And if you're more attached to your stuff, then they, that tells them, that informs them that, well, this person's probably not going to be that open to what I have to tell them. You know, they're probably going to think it's weird and whatnot. Or if it's something that they can't see and feel tangibly like they can with whatever they purchase with their money, then it's probably going to end up being standing in the way of their progress. And and so by making that exchange um, on the front end, it kind of opens you up. It, it makes you more humble. It, it, it tells the teacher that you're willing to be a student and you're not going to try to go in there and teach them on how to teach you. And it, that increases the quality of the experience. And I just want to put that out there. I actually mentioned it in my book as well. I talk about exchange, the, the importance of the exchange. And it's not just money. It could be volunteering your time. You know, in India, it's a big thing. When Elizabeth, when Elizabeth Gilbert, in her book, Eat, Pray, Love, went to India to learn meditation, she was on her hands and knees scrubbing the floors of the ashram for hours a day. That was her exchange. That was her way of making a contribution to for, for in exchange for her instruction. And I think that that's a necessary component for anyone to approach a practice like meditation so that they get the most out of the experience. Because if you're in there, you know, feeling like you know everything, you're just, it could be the most high, the highest quality teacher or highest quality approach, and it's still not going to have the same kind of effect. So you want to make sure you have all of those different um, requirements in place in order to get the best effect. And that's and that's that's the ultimate goal behind the book I wrote. I wanted people to learn how to ask better questions. So when you're out there in the field, and I, I say this very openly in the book, you know, this is a great start. But ultimately, if you really want to get good at this, you want to find some person to teach you how to do this. And this is what you want to ask. This is how you can vet teachers. This is how you can know that they know what they're talking about. If they're telling you to quiet your mind, run in the opposite direction because it's not possible to quiet your mind. And, and they obviously don't understand that well enough yet. And then maybe they'll get there soon, but they're not there yet. So, and there are other little things like that that can help someone find um, the best way, the best person to teach them. You're talking about your book, uh, Bliss More. Mm -hmm. And I, I haven't mentioned the subtitle there, but I think you nailed something really important. The subtitle is How to Succeed in Meditation Without Really Trying. Um, I when I first started doing really serious meditation-related neurofeedback, I was really struggling to, to get my brain into the state of someone who's, who's done advanced meditation. And it took about, about 10 days of, of really focused effort before I realized the problem was I, was I was pushing really hard. And it was when you just stop, and all of a sudden my brain waves were bigger than when I was like trying to force it. Mm -hmm. And, and it's, it's the same I found even with you know, growing a company or, you know, creating a piece of art or whatever it is, it, it, it's, it's like you allow something versus yeah. try. Mm -hmm. And it's very hard to put it in language, but I mean, you nailed it in your title. And that, that's one of the secrets to meditation is, you know, stop trying so hard to meditate and just sit there and kind of let it happen. Mm -hmm. But okay. When I first started meditating, I'd sit there trying to let it happen. And I'd think about, uh, naked people, uh, anything that might be a threat and how hungry I was, the, yeah. you know, the big three, the big three mitochondrial <laughs> behaviors. Right. Um, so what do you say to a newbie meditator who says, all right, I decided to not try. And I sat there and I just thought about jelly donuts the whole time. Mm -hmm. <laughs> What's going on with that? So the difference in, the, in a seasoned meditator and a new meditator, there's a couple of things. Number one, the new meditator, oftentimes they don't have any structure in their practice. So they're just in there using shoddy guesswork, and what they're hoping for is that most of their thoughts are going to be positive in nature. And the ones that are not positive or that are neutral, 
in nature, those are the ones that tend to get rejected. And it's a knee jerk reaction that, you know, this is what they've been doing their entire life, rejecting those thoughts in favor of the positive affirmative thoughts. The seasoned meditator has an understanding and, and really learns to do this with a lot of repetition and practice that it doesn't really matter what you're thinking about. It doesn't really matter what you're thinking about in terms of the process, as far as the process is concerned. And, and so your attitude is everything. The more, the more passive, the more nonchalant you become while you're meditating, especially around those, uh, what may be termed as intrusive thoughts, the more your mind will respond positively in terms of settling itself through the thoughts. So you have to go through those thoughts. You have to embrace those thoughts in order to go beyond those thoughts. The second thing that the new meditator and the, the seasoned meditator have um, in, in terms of their separate approaches is the new meditator does not appreciate all of the things that have been happening before they started meditating, right? Which means that your body's been taking on stress. You probably are a bit sleep deprived. And so that has a major influence on the quality of your thinking experiences as well. And stress had a big head start on the effects of the meditation. So meditation is very powerful, especially when you have structure. It can be, it can be extremely powerful for your mind and your body, but the stress had a big head start. And it's not going to happen overnight. Just like when you go to the gym at 40 and you've never worked out consistently in your entire life, you're going to feel sore for those first you know, week or two. And mm -hmm. the meditation version of the soreness is you're having all these crazy random um, thoughts. And I equate meditation in that sense uh, as a plunger. It's kind of like a plunger and it's unclogging the crap that's been stored up in the body that's been clogging up your potential. And so just like if you have to do this in a bathroom, in a toilet, what's coming out is not going to be pleasant. It's not going to be nice. It's not going to mm -hmm. smell good, right? But ultimately, the goal is to unclog the toilet. And the way you know the meditation is working is not based on what you're thinking about in the meditation. It's based on how well are you sleeping at night? How adaptable are you are during the day? How compassionate are you with your the people that you care about? You know, a lot of people treat their clients and coworkers better than they treat the people they profess to love. And that's because we bottle up the stress at work and we come home and we don't have an outlet for it, so we just let it all out. And so the people we profess to love end up end up taking the brunt of our reactivity and you know us being triggered at work, and it ends up ruining those relationships. And we're sitting around wondering why we have a bad marriage, why our kids don't like us, why I can't seem to get my life together. Um, but I'm very successful in my job and, and it requires more balance. And so when those areas of life start to improve more and more, that's how you know meditation is working. But meanwhile, in the meditation itself, you're thinking about jelly donuts. You're thinking about you know, mm -hmm. where you, where you, what movie you want to see next. Or you're thinking you're having uh, anxious thoughts or you're feeling like you're having depressing thoughts. right? And what people also don't understand is that whatever went into your body at any point in your life can potentially come out of the body when the plunger gets to work. So if you had a history of 14 or 15 years of depression or, you know, anxiety and you start meditating, your body sometimes as it's releasing this stuff, it, it can make you feel like you're re-experiencing it. And, and, and that's, it feels problematic in the moment, but if you, if the, as the seasoned meditator understands, this is something that's leaving me, it's not coming in 
then it allows you to relax more into it. And just by, again, changing your attitude, reframing the experience, this is not a bad thing. This is actually, this is a sign of progress because I'm not doing anything different. I'm still sitting here on my bed. I'm still engaged in the process. And yet I'm having these randomly crazy thoughts. Oh, this must be something that's on its way out. And let me just stay relaxed, stay calm as much as possible. And as a result, it allows the mind to continue to settle beyond that. And we we find that the quality of our experiences can go up when possible. So it's the do less, accomplish more approach to meditation. Beautifully put. Uh, the idea that that some scary and ugly stuff comes out during meditation. Yep, uh, that's been my experience for sure. And that's what, that's what they teach in the ancient practices as well. But it's not something that you're necessarily going to hear about when you download the latest app. <laughs> so I'm, I'm happy you oh. said that. The app is all about, you know, meditate for abundance, meditate for gratitude and this and again that's it's a nice thing it's not you're not going to get particularly deep in those experiences but it's good to just get people familiar with the idea of meditating and then ultimately you want to graduate from that and you want to find some instruction or you want to just you know take it a little bit more seriously so you don't have yeah. to be tethered to your phone in order to meditate i'm 100 percent with you there now one more question for you that is my new question at the end of the show on post game changers. Uh, and I've been running an anti-aging nonprofit group for almost 20 years now. And the question for you is how long do you want to live? How many years? I'm ready to go out today, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a big believer of leaving it all in the field. <laughs> so anytime. Um, yeah, you know, I think, I think uh, practically speaking, you know, what's the average is what they say is 80 years or something like that. It's 80, 87, somewhere around. Yeah. I think if I can get a quality, a good quality 80 something years, I'm, I'm happy with that. I, I wouldn't want necessarily to live um, past all of my family and friends. And, you know, you know, um, I just think I think the natural cycle is, is I'm, I'm good with that. I'm good. I'm, I'm actually you know, I've done a lot of reading and, and research in the afterlife and what that's about. And I'm not sure how much you've talked about this on your podcast, but there's some pretty compelling um, research and evidence that, you know, things are actually pretty good on the other side as well. And in fact, some people would go so far as to say that's that's our home. And this is actually just like a REM sleep version of, you know, the spiritual dreaming and so I'm, I'm happy to go back home if, if that's if that's what's happening. And I'm also happy to be here and keep contributing. And I've become very clear that my life is really about just, you know, trying to inspire as many people as possible, trying to leave the world in a better place. And when it's my time, it's not really in my hands anyway. So I'm happy to, you know, at that point, obviously, my work will have been done. And um, yeah, and I, I don't really care much about, you know, making as much money as possible or trying to be comfortable or any, any of those kinds of things. In, in the Vedic tradition, what they say is that there is no such thing as death. There's only there's body life and there's body death, but the spirit lives forever. And the thing that you take with you at the end of this life is your consciousness. And that consciousness can be shaped and can be um, informed by the quality of our personal day to day interactions. And so as long as you're approaching every interaction as though there are no throwaway moments, there are no throwaway conversations, then I think you're going to be in a better place when you ultimately transcend this body and move on to the next thing. That's beautifully put, but uh, you got to risk there's 
yoga gurus. I lived 247 years and you know, I, I lived in a cave for 50 years on just water. I mean, there's a long tradition of people living longer than they're supposed to. Yeah. No, no, no. How do you reconcile those practices you know, from well, these guys, the lineage of your teaching? Right? These guys who say this are mostly in the monastic category. So they, they're yeah. living in caves and things like that. I'm, I'm, I'm a householder. I'm not a, I'm not a monk. I, I like living around people. I like going to family reunions, yeah. Thanksgiving. And I don't want to be the guy that's 120 <laughs> at the Thanksgiving, you know, and everyone else is, <laughs> is 40 <laughs> and 50 years old talking about the latest technology that I could care less about. Um, but again, like if I ended up living to be a hundred, say, then I know that it was relevant for me to, to keep doing what I'm doing and, and I'm just going to keep getting, hopefully I'll keep getting better and less concerned about myself and more concerned about the planet and how I can be a use. How can I, how can I use whatever gifts and potential that I have to the best of my ability? And that, that's really where I try to keep my attention. It's not necessarily on yeah. the quantity, but on the quality. There you go. Experience. Just like sleep, right? Yeah. You want it to be really high quality, even if the quantity is less. So I'm yes. with you there. Uh, light. What's, what's your answer, Dave? I think uh, at least 180. Okay. And, why 180? If you can get to 180, why not 200? Why stop there? That's why there's an at least on there. <laughs> uh, and it's it's because I know we can do 120 because enough people have done it. Uh, and they've done it without knowing most of what we know today. And... Uh, I'm just counting on over the next oh, 100 years, <laughs> we ought to be able to get 50% more mm-hmm. uh, out of this because I'm friends with a lot of the people starting anti-aging companies. Uh, I've looked at the technologies and how they've evolved. And I I feel like I'm being a little bit conservative there, uh, but that it's it's achievable. But the real answer there is I'd like to die at a time and by a method of my choosing. I see. Uh, so if I'm done before 180, I'm happy to sign out. And like you, hey, there's probably something interesting on the other side. And one of two things is true. Either there's nothing on the other side, in which case I'm not going to know it, or there's something on the other side and I'll figure out what it is and be curious about it. Like I, I kind of can't lose. So. That's right. That's right. Well, we mentioned your book, uh, which is really, a, if, if, if you're looking at meditation, you're looking at learning what this is about, I think there's some great knowledge uh, in, in Light Watkins' book called Bliss More, How to Succeed in Meditation Without Really Trying. What we didn't mention is your your shine movement, where you actually have meetups uh, around the country and you teach people how to do this. Mm-hmm. And you have info and all that stuff at lightwatkins.com. L-I-G-H-T Watkins, as you'd expect. Yeah. Yep. Light, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for doing what you can to make the world a better place. I think it's working. Thank you. Thanks. And I want to acknowledge you for being such a big proponent of all of these different, you know, hacks for the body, hacks for the mind, hacks for the spirit, hacks for bliss. Um, There are a lot of people who are being introduced to these practices because of the work that you're doing. And I'm just appreciative to have been able to cross paths with you in this way. And hopefully we'll get a chance to to sit down and, and, and have more time to talk about these these wonderful things. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products.
Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.